Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White, still on the road, getting home next week, thankfully. Um, I'm sure my wife, well, I hope my wife uh, wants me to get home next week. Um, I just noticed, I just saw on Twitter that uh, Phoenix has set a new temperature record for the day at 117 degrees. Um, yeah, that's pretty toasty. Um, sort of what I'm learning from this is if summer takes June off, then it's well rested. <laughs> when it heads into July, it gets pretty ugly. Um, I haven't looked to see what the, um, what the, uh, dew point is. Cause if dew points up, Ooh, ugly. Uh, but I haven't heard about any big damaging storms or anything. So I'm not where it's that warm at the moment uh, in Colorado, obviously. Uh, we have gotten a lot of storms and stuff uh, here uh, as well, but we are still on the road and I am running on a backup computer, so I hope everything goes uh, well today. Uh, I was actually recording a, a program with Dead Men Walking podcast. We're going to have to find a time to finish recording that. And all of a sudden, the computer shuts down. And... The way it happened so quickly, I'm like, oh, no, because I've been having power problems. There's something wrong with the charging circuit. And um, when I got it plugged in someplace else and let it charge and stuff like that, and it came back up, Logos was running. <laughs> you know, I'm so old. You know how old I am? I am so old. I remember when Logos was called Libronics. We installed it on discs. I'm not sure if I had five and a quarter floppies or only three and a half. I don't remember now. Um, but you you installed it um, using big old discs. And it has always been a memory hog. It has always been a system hog. Once you fired that up, you just had to make sure nothing, you didn't, you didn't have to do anything else. Maybe a note program, you might be able to survive that but um it's just always been the way it is and then when it when it indexes <laughs> so what had happened was it had started indexing and i hadn't noticed it i I'm, I'm focused on doing the program and it had started indexing and it just slammed that that shouldn't kill your system clearly i've got a charging problem but it killed it and it killed it dead so i am on a backup system now the other one's already recharged, uh, but I had already done all the work of getting everything loaded onto this one, and we'll see how it works. We'll see how it works. All right, so today, um, I suppose uh, I could put this over here, and we could we could look at this uh, together. Um, the only problem is I'm using Kindle and. Kindle is questionable as far as um, how it does stuff, and I, I suppose, uh, let me uh, see how big I can get this. Yeah, it's good enough. Um, it'll work. It'll work. We'll use it uh, so you can see it as well. Um, sometime yesterday, someone posted a graphic. And it uh, was titled, What is Biblicism? And it said that it was from the new Matthew Barrett book, uh, Reformation is Renewal. 
And I know that I would assume the paper copy is sitting in my office or someplace. I'm not sure. Um, but it came out while I was on this trip. And I, I read through the graphic and I'm like, okay, I, I don't want to necessarily send more money Dr. Barrett's direction, but I need to make sure that this is accurate before I comment on it. And so uh, we got the Kindle edition of the book. And I noticed it was very early on in, in the book itself. And so I started looking at it. I, I confirmed it was accurate. It was the text from, uh, from the book. And I, I was looking this morning, started reading through the, through the book up to that point. It's Like I said, it's early on. Um, I, I don't think we're going to have to worry about too many people just picking it up and reading it. It, um, it is not designed to be um, easily understood um, or anything like that. Um, and what was odd is this section on what is Biblicism just seemed to be just dropped in. Um, it didn't flow naturally from what came before. It's very strange. Uh, I'm not sure why the editors did what they did, or maybe there wasn't anything they could do about it. I, I don't know. It was it was very very odd, very strange. And uh, so I want to wrote a little article. I don't know about six months ago or so now about reformed biblicism, because until. Just the past couple of years, I cannot possibly imagine any context amongst Reformed Baptists and conservative Presbyterians and and uh, just believing evangelicals and stuff. I, I just can't imagine a context in which someone would have, if, if someone had said, yeah, I, I, I'm a biblicist, that someone would have said, oh, I can't believe that you'd be such a radical. We considered the term to be uh, a compliment. It indicated a central focus on Scripture as the Word of God, as authoritative. Certainly for me, dealing with Roman Catholicism, uh, dealing with uh, pseudo-Christian cults, that have other books of scripture, other sources of authority. Uh, it, it, it would never cross my mind to be offended at someone who would say that they were a biblicist. Now, at the same time, um, you know, I don't have the information in front of me. Uh, sorry, just lots of things going on right now. But um, the index for fully searchable index for the dividing line i think is pretty much ready to be used uh we're gonna have to i don't know if, if maybe i'll have one of our guys be on the program to help explain all this because i've i don't know how to really use it yet um but I was told a couple days ago that it's it's probably ready to go. And 
I don't know yet exactly what it's covering. I, I think it's all the dividing lines and all the debates right now. I don't think the sermons are included, but hopefully will be eventually. And that's going to be really neat. Obviously, we're going to need to have sort of like a portal to it so you can just go there from our website and, and all sorts of neat stuff like that. And I obviously really need to learn how to use it. But if we were to use that and go back, um, I think you would find me talking about you and your Bible under a tree. <laughs> we could search for Bible plus under a tree. <laughs> I don't know. And we could go many, 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 many years back where I have been speaking to uh, those who attempt to isolate the Bible from the church, uh, isolate themselves and their Bible from the church, uh, from what God has done, been doing in the church, uh, building the kingdom of God, uh, all of this type of stuff. I've been talking about that for a long, long time and saying, you know, it's not you and your Bible under a tree. It's not you reinventing the wheel with, with each uh, generation. We stand on the shoulders of giants and we should be very thankful for those who have come before us. At the same time, I have often made reference to the former professor of church history. Uh, I was going to look it up, but again, once the computer went wacky and had everything else, didn't have time to. But at the Old Covenant Seminary, um, the fellow who taught church history there for years, I, I listened to his series a number of times. And one of the things I really liked is he would finish each class either with a quotation that was a positive thanks to God for what he had done um, in the church in the past, um, or more of a help us to learn from the errors and the mistakes of those in the past. And, and look, in a lot of lessons... You wanted to quote both of them, and you could have quoted both of them uh, pretty easily. And that's what church history is all about, is um, in a mature fashion, learning to take the positive and learn from the negative. But a biblicist will always, a reformed biblicist, uh, and that's a term that I, I used. I wrote an article. I, interestingly enough, used uh, Calvin's response to Satteletto, 1539, uh, as the foundation for that. I had done some dividing lines where we had looked, well, at least one where we had looked at Calvin's response to Satteletto as an example of Reformed Biblicism because he is making the argument that because the reformers are teaching what the apostles taught and testing it by scripture, that they are more small c Catholic and more uh, connected to the ancient church than the Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century because of all of the accretion of um, massive amounts of unbiblical tradition. 
uh, Barrett starts his book at the same place. And I don't really have time to do it today, but I would... He starts that chapter with a citation from Calvin's response to that I would encourage everybody to read about two pages before and two pages after to get a uh, significantly more accurate understanding of uh, what Calvin was saying in that, in that quote. Anyway, so we've, we've talked about uh, Biblicism. We've talked about the importance of it and what, you know, what's, what are the, what are the alternatives? And so when I read this section of the book, like I said, it just, it just drops out. It just drops into the text. It, it, it's very strange. It is not historical scholarship at all. It's a diatribe. It's it's an argument. It's a um, it's a straw man argument, but it's an argument anyways. And in fact, uh, someone in our chat channel um, noted that my son-in-law Eric had posted a ten-tweet thread on confessionalism. And I verified this, but the reason he did that was he was illustrating how easy it is to strawman another position. He's going after confessionalists, but it's not fair and it's not even handed and it's obviously got, you know, a point that it's trying to make and it ignores all sorts of other things that a confessionalist would believe or say. And so it's it's easy to do this kind of thing. And, and here it is, the beginning of this massive book uh what does this say here 981 pages yeah okay so uh that's 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 a lot of verbiage and it just it strikes me that matthew barrett credo magazine um midwestern these are the people that are promoting this Thomistic renaissance this um reformation as renewal whatever you want to say this does not reflect well on the mindset and attitude that is behind this book it, it really 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 doesn't uh, but we need to look at it i think it's important to think through these things because a lot of people are confused we're sitting here going well I thought we were biblicists, but now there's all these people saying that we're not biblicists, and and that biblicism is dangerous, and uh, what you know, what's the, what's this all about? And unfortunately, for a lot of folks, the, the lines have already been drawn. That's it. There's, there's nothing more to be said. But um, we'll uh, we'll take a look at this and make some comments as we as we go along. So let's uh, let's look at it. And, uh, oops, that's not what I wanted. I wanted that one. There we go. And uh, one over there. There we go. And I'm wondering if we've still got this. Yeah, but it's the teeny tiny again. Uh, we're back to minuscule me. But that sort of actually allows you to read the text, so that's, uh, that's fun. Uh, what is Biblicism? To be Protestant is to believe in biblical authority. Well, that's a not much of an observation. However, 
Biblical authority and Biblicism are not synonymous. Again, two sentences in a row that really don't say anything. Who would think that they are? Biblicism moves beyond believing in the final authority of the Bible to imposing a restrictive hermeneutical method onto the Bible. Really? Says who? I don't know. Evidently, Dr. Barrett gets to define these things now. Um, what what is, is Are we saying that Biblicism, that the hermeneutic of Biblicism is such that Scripture is unique ontologically as being theonustos? And that your hermeneutic has to take that in consideration. Is that what we mean by uh, some restrictive hermeneutic? I don't know. So here's here's subpoints. Number one, a historical mindset. Biblicism is a haughty disregard, chronological snobbery in the words of C.S. Lewis, for the history of interpretation and the authority of creeds and confessions. Chanting an individualistic mantra, no creed but the Bible, which in practice translates into no authority but me. Now, this is exactly what Trent Horn and the Roman Catholics say about all Protestants. I mean, pretty much word for word. Pretty much word for word. Um, and as I've said to Roman Catholics all along, stop strawmanning us. Now I say it to Matthew Barrett. Stop strawmanning us. Now again, can you find people? Can you find people on Twitter that believe that? <laughs> let's let's just ask a different question. D don't you think that on Twitter you could find someone who believes almost anything? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. But um, as a reformed biblicist, um, I teach church history. And have since 1990. So, almost quarter of a century. So, Reformed Biblicism is not a disregard of the history of interpretation. In fact, I think it's vital for us to recognize, for example, the, the deep damage that was done by Origen and the acceptance of Origen's um, perspectives and influencing people for many, many generations into the medieval period, all the way up to the Reformation. So, history of interpretation? You mean like um, reading Burkhoff and understanding the development of Christian doctrine and the different kinds of, you know, looking at Augustine and and seeing when he got it right, and then also when he got it wrong, and uh, sometimes right and wrong on the same page? Is that looking at the influence of Neoplatonism on Augustine and his development in, in theology? No one's saying you should ignore any of those things. Are there people that don't know anything about any of that stuff? Yeah. Doesn't make them biblicists. Um, and the authority of creeds and confessions. So that's a, 
really, really major, major topic. I personally, I'll just be honest with you. I'm just being straightforward with you here. I, I hope Dr. Barrett does not uh, engage in any debates with Roman Catholic apologists because I, I think the result would be um, pretty uh, epic, epically bad. Um, because I'm not sure how he would even engage uh, with a with Roman Catholics who are really promoting the authority of Rome. Um, the allegation of abandoning creeds and confessions, that was, of course, aimed at the reformers themselves. And how they responded to that was not by an unbridled and unquestioned reaffirmation but by an appeal to apostolic authority. It's too bad that Calvin never finished his uh, responses to Trent. Well, obviously he couldn't since he died. Um, but when he was responding to Trent's decrees, it's fascinating how, you know, here's, here's creed and confession. Yeah, but you don't have the right to do these things. You don't have, you don't have the right to, to create this kind of dogma. Um, that has to come from Scripture itself. So, um, no creed but the Bible? Well, Church of Christ has been saying that for a long time. So, is this, if this is only about the Church of Christ, I didn't realize they were such, a, such an important and vital movement in our day that in your opening chapter that you drop this anti-biblicism bomb right in the middle of it. That doesn't seem to be who they're aiming at. Um, but no creed but the Bible. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that. I, I hear Unitarians say that. Which in practice translates into no authority but me. So there, that again, uh, that's Jimmy Aiken, that's Trent Horn, that's Patrick Madrid, that's... Um, Mark Brumley, that's, um, um, you, you just go down the line. In fact, think about it. Go back to the dividing line from, from Monday. That is exactly what Trent Horn says when he defines Sola Scriptura at the beginning of his comments. Remember? It's identical. Now coming from the head of the Department of Theology or whatever it is at um, Midwestern. So, next line, sola scriptura is radicalized into solo scriptura. Okay. Uh, as we said many, many times, this is a standard canard. Um, we've demonstrated it to be a, a canard. Um, I remember when I think it was Matheson that uh, popularized this in an article a number of years ago. I remember Bill Webster, David King... Myself, we all discussed whether this was a useful phrase or not. And the idea, again, if all we're talking about is a small sect of the Church of Christ, maybe no instruments, um, <laughs> handling snakes in West Virginia someplace... Okay, but that, we all know that's not who's being addressed here. We all know that. 
we, we know what this is actually being aimed at. And anyone who says that in my book, Scripture Alone, um, in the Roman Catholic controversy, in the debates I've done in defending solo scriptura, that I'm pre presenting solo scriptura is a liar. Or they're just so confused they shouldn't, you shouldn't really bother listening to them. Um, one of the two, it's both are possible. It's astonishing to me how many people um, are making comments about me who've obviously never watched this program, wouldn't even know how to find it, have not read my books, have not listened to the debates. Um, you know, you, you may have seen on social media, we are um, looking at, well, Chris Arnson has pretty much lined up someone for the debate in just now less than two months. And in God's providence, by the way, taking a brief detour here for a second, we'll come back. Um, this may be providential. The reason I say this is if we end up debating the individual that we're looking at right now, who's already said it should be able to work, um, his position and argument is very directly relevant to the movement to create an affirming um, cons an affirming allegedly conservative evangelical acceptance of gay Christianity. Why is that so important right now? Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley. We have been talking about his trajectory, his arc, for quite some time. And I was informed a few days ago that there is a conference coming up uh, at his church, churches, campuses, whatever. And when I looked at the names of the people that are going to be involved with it, one just leapt off, I was going to say leapt off the page, but you really can't say that. Um, you can't say that uh, these days, so it leapt off the screen, maybe? I don't know, it doesn't have quite the same panache to it. David Gushy. David Gushy is going to be speaking. Now, I noticed, and, and, and the information that was given to me had to give me this information, had to tell me this. I didn't recognize the other names, but the vast majority of the other names are people that are involved with affirming ministries, people that are seeking to affirm the propriety of identifying as gay Christians and accepting gay Christianity and things like that. And so with all those coming, but... As soon as you see David Gushy, you just know. Now, a lot of you are newer listeners. I don't remember what year it was. Again, once we put the page up where we can search this, um, we'll, we'll be able to pull this up very, very quickly. Um, but a number of years ago, I spent... I, I'm thinking that when I responded to Matthew Vines, the Matthew Vines response was five hours long. His talk was about... An hour and ten minutes. So we played all of that. So you can figure out the rest from there. And then David Gushy spoke at Matthew Vine's event. And I, again, I think we, the total on that was 
six hours, including the hour-long talks. So uh, we provided a deep response to David Goshi. If he's speaking, then you know what's coming at North Point. And a lot of people called this when his Andy Stanley's father died, uh, that this was, would probably be what you know, let the dam break and the direction, the unhitching from the Old Testament would become the unhitching from everything else in the process, becoming a red-letter Christian and that kind of progressivism that we see all the time. And so uh, hopefully that debate will be, will be very useful. But starting to move back to our topic here, uh, next February, Lord willing, a lot of things can happen between now and February. Uh, the economy could collapse. Uh, we could have Chinese troops in the streets uh, invited here uh, by the regime. Who knows? But Lord willing, and we still have food, fuel, and the ability to travel. We are looking at a uh, marathon month of February. I, I must hate myself uh, to schedule what we're scheduling in that month. But right now we're looking at uh, five debates, minimally, um, in the month of February. And Trent Horn has already uh, mentioned on social media that we are looking at Sola Scriptura and Purgatory as uh, debate topics in uh, Houston. Um, there are two other individuals uh, that one hasn't responded yet, uh, one has that we're arranging um, and talking about as far as the debates are concerned. Um, one of those is Dale Tuggy on Is Jesus Yahweh? And then outside of the Houston, these are in Houston, the Lutheran Church in Houston that has been just been so helpful in um, scheduling so many things as far as debates are concerned. Um, there's one, be one more there, hopefully be, have information on that person's acceptance of the challenge. And then um, a debate in Tullahoma at Jeffrey Rice's conference, same month, on uh, the subject of Calvinism. So... Uh, it's the the issue of uh, sola scriptura will once again be addressed, and it's going to be very interesting um, to challenge uh, Trent Horn if he attempts to use Poirier. I will challenge him on the basis of the actual data, uh, the TLG databases. Um, Semantic domains. Um, if you're going to if you're going to use the, if you're going to present those argument arguments, you need to be able to back them up. Same thing with Dale Tuggy. Dale Tuggy will present a lot of secondary language arguments, but he is not in any position himself to evaluate the validity or consistency of said arguments because, as far as I can tell, he he does not possess the scholarship, the training in biblical languages 
semantic domains um, issues related to that to be able to to do so. Uh, we saw that in regards to textual criticism too, in an earlier response to him. Anyway, so um, February is going to be pretty amazing, um, very very intense, and the church in Houston does live stream the events and yeah we're already already talking about making sure that when we live stream them you'll be able to see the uh, screens easier uh, they have the same board that I have sitting right here and so there are ways of doing that that we're gonna work on with the uh, audiovisual guys so pray toward that end pray for the church there in, in Houston and um, Ed McClanahan the pastor there who's doing a lot of this work is he's, we're not paying him to do it. He's, he does it because he feels that these are useful, just like we do. And so we're very thankful to be able to partner with him in doing all of this stuff. So those are some major things uh, coming up. And obviously, that's going to require a tremendous amount of work on my part uh, to prepare. And at this time, I'm being straight up. I'm putting together folks to help me do research. I, I've My debates in the past have almost always been just me, myself, and I. Partly because if you're in cross-examination, you didn't do all your own research, it's going to come out. But when you're doing, trying to do this many debates on widely divergent topics, um, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to say, and I know my opponents always have people. I've, I've watched my opponents. And I'm not just talking about Iglesia Cristo. <laughs> I'm not talking about having a bunch of setting up a bunch of tables behind us and have people running around with books and doing, no, we're not going to be doing that. Um, but I know um, that when I debated in Houston against Stratton on Molinism, uh, there was a whole bunch of people that worked on the on on that presentation, and uh, so I we've been up against that before, but this time I'm just like. With this, this amount of, uh, this breadth of information to cover, uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna need to have some folks uh, give assistance with all that because uh, little old me just, uh, yeah, it's a lot. So anyway, all this to, to bring us back to um, when we, one of, the, one of those debates uh, will be on Solo Scriptura. It will be with Trent Horn. And we know exactly what it's going to end up focusing on. As well it must, as well it, it needs to. And what I will defend is Sola Scriptura, not the absurd misrepresentation of Sola Scriptura. Um, you know, I, I believe uh, that Fulgentius of Rusp was a fellow believer of mine. That's what makes so many of this when, when uh, remember I did the response uh, at the beginning of the last trip, when one of the first things I recorded in here by myself, um, to the Roman Catholic argument that was being presented, how can you believe that you know, Martin Luther was the first Christian after 1,500 years? don't and I can see how a solo scriptura person might come up with something like that but that's that's straw man argumentation it's it's irrelevant 
And um, so, anyway, uh, get that out there. Continuing, Sola Scriptura is radicalized into Sola Scriptura. As a result, Biblicism fails to let theology inform exegesis, which is designed to guard against heresy. As a result, Biblicism fails to let theology inform exegesis. Well, oops. <laughs> there we go. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't... Well, I'll pull it up after I make my comments here. If by theology inform exegesis, you mean that we recognize that we are handling the Word of God and we uh, interpret the Bible in light of its entire canon and in light of what God did with Israel, bringing the Messiah, uh, the, the gospel going into all the world. Um, if, if, if that's what you mean, okay. But I want to know what someone means when they say theology um, informs exegesis because I have every time I have debated Roman Catholic their theology informed their exegesis right out of the Bible <laughs> um, I have when when you when you stand in Rome uh, and I'm not going to get to any of the other topics I was going to cover today I'm just I'm realizing that right now I'm not going to get to any of them I'm looking at the clock and it's like, well, I know what we're going to be doing on Friday. Um, but uh, I was going to get to Granville Sharp in Titus and Second Peter. We'll, we'll do that. And I'm also going to respond to Steve Camp. Because Steve Camp has said that if you're a post-millennialist, you mistranslate Matthew 28. And he doesn't even mean mistranslate. He means misinterpret. I'm not sure why he said translate. But, but we'll respond to it. Uh, on uh, on that time, um, at that time, but this is pretty important stuff, and the people promoting this stuff, they have the publishing houses and most of the seminaries, and we have our RV, <laughs> and I think we're winning, anyways. <laughs> but anyway, um. Biblicism fails to let theology inform exegesis. Well, Christian theology has as its basis exegesis. So this is a chicken and the egg thing. Which comes first? And it sounds like what they're saying is, well, look, we, we're not reinventing the wheel. Okay, we're not reinventing the wheel. But the wheel doesn't come off the axle. In other words, the wheel has to first have been formed out of the very substance of divine revelation. You can't get past that. And once you get past that, as has happened many times in the history of the church, once you get past that, um, you end up with doctrines being taught with the authority of dogma that are utterly absent from the preaching and teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ. 
let's use as an example purgatory purgatory developed over centuries purgatory is a natural development of human religion rather than divine revelation but it developed slowly over time until it finally reached its final dogmatic form in the 15th century and became the basis of some of the most outrageous blasphemies against the gospel you could ever see. You stand there, again, in, in Rome, that's where I was going before, and you look up at the cupola in the Vatican, and you have Matthew 16, the alleged Petrine promise, in gold. Solid gold. Up there in the ceiling. And every time I've debated a Roman Catholic on the papacy, that theology has informed their exegesis. Their theology of the papacy does not come from exegesis, but is their exegesis is informed by their theology. So that's why I look at these guys that blithely say these things and go, I hope you guys stay out of the debate realm because it, 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 it's ugly when you all wander into it. Because you'd get run over like a, like, you'd run over by, by a, a steamroller. Because if you want to start talking about the great tradition and everything else, if you're sitting there and, and you, you're so emphasizing certain aspects of historical theology that your students are drawing pictures of Thomas Aquinas for you, you're going to have a hard time in a debate with Roman Catholic if they're sharp. Because all they have to do is go, really glad that you see the importance of Thomas's deep understanding of the doctrine of God. But let me show you what that necessarily means. Yeah, good luck with that. So, so evidently, the idea is theology informs exegesis, which is designed to guard against heresy. Okay, if what you mean by that is that we're not a tabula rasa, we don't just come to the text and we don't care about its history or its context or its language or hermeneutics or anything like that, and then pe and when people do that, which they do every day in Twitter, uh, they come up with all sorts of wild and wacky and strange stuff. Okay. But that's not what that's aimed at. That's not what this is aimed at. He's not talking about Twitter. At all. So, got to think these things through. Number two, irresponsible proof texting. Oops. Ta-da. Irresponsible proof texting. Biblicism treats scripture as if it is a dictionary or encyclopedia as if the theologian merely excavates the right proof text, chapter and verse, tallying them up to support a doctrine. Biblicism limits itself to those beliefs explicitly laid down in Scripture and fails to deduce doctrines from Scripture by good and necessary consequence. Oh! How long before Barrett becomes a pedo-baptist, I wonder? I don't know. But I know where good and necessary consequence comes from, and I know how it's used. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Heard that one before. That's why the Baptists used a different phrase. Okay. Again, um, 
this is not meant to be a fair treatment. And this is what these guys are doing. Is in their talks, in their podcast, they'll take shots. Um, I'm really have to. I'm really sad to have to announce that after four attempts, and the last three, I know got through to contact Dr. Carl Truman um, to ask him, "Are you talking about me? You talking about me? <laughs> you looking at me?" Um, to to ask him. Um, you know, you, you're talking about this conservative Baptist in Philippians chapter 2, and everybody's saying, that's me. Carl, is that me? Because, hey, we've done stuff together in the past. We stood in a graveyard with Phil Johnson and uh, uh, Mike Abendroth in New England and talked about the gospel and stuff like that. And, and afterwards, we kept in contact, and we talked about the Tour de France and all sorts of stuff like that. Four times. Last three times were to the email address specifically listed on the website at the school at which he is currently teaching. Won't respond to me. Won't respond to me. So if, 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 if you write to someone saying, are you talking about me? And you won't even respond to them, that is about as clear a way of saying, yes, I'm talking about you. So unfortunately, what you hear, and, and this, the last one was... Carl Truman with Matthew Barrett. So they're throwing this stuff out and they're they're making accusations. Um, but they won't name names because if they name names, then they actually have to do their homework and back up what they're saying. And if they don't back up what they're saying and they misrepresent what's being said, they know that we can demonstrate that, that we can document that very, very clearly. And so... That's what you've got in this, is this is just a blast that's dropped down in the middle of nowhere in the book um, that contains all the canards and all the straw men that, again, you can find people like this over here and then over here. They're not going to be consistently in any one place. And those of us who have been saying, hey, your, your fascination with Thomas is misplaced. And it's going to result in more people, like the young man who was received in the Roman Catholic Church just a few months ago, um, who was a student of Matthew Barrett. It's going to result in more and more of that, not in some simplistic sense. That's what they want to do. Oh, they're all going to be swimming the tide. They just dismiss it laughingly. It's when your best students think through what you're saying and take it to its proper conclusion that they are going to be asking authority questions and epistemological questions that you're not addressing. And I don't think you're ready to address. I would love to know what Matthew Barrett said to that student of his, if he even addressed it. Um, in maybe, but Did they meet? I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to know what he would have said. I'd like I'd like to be a fly on the wall or a gnat uh, on the wall. And uh, by the way, we evidently have a storm coming in. I'm hearing lots of thunder outside, but I'm sort of busy, so I haven't been noticing it. Let me see here. I don't see any uh, raindrops on the window, so if it's not pouring down, we'll we'll probably be fine. Anyway, 
Um, these, uh, the idea of, well, you're, you're ignoring uh, the context of Scripture. You're ignoring the fact that it, it's not in a dictionary or encyclopedia. Um, this is not, a, obviously, these people are not doing proper uh, hermeneutics at all. Just accurately handling the text of Scripture. And Biblicism limits itself to those beliefs explicitly laid down in Scripture and fails to deduce doctrines from Scripture by good and necessary consequence. Well, okay, exactly where do you draw the line there? Um, it, it does seem you guys are willing to uh, dogmatize particular developments that took place centuries and centuries after the apostles. I mean, if, if, if you're going to dogmatize Thomas and you're talking, you know, 1,200 years down the road. Um, but there, there is, the, we, we do have to ask yourself the question, how far can you go? How far do the headlights of Scripture shine and allow us to make secondary and tertiary applications and where do you draw the dogma line do where is scripture enough are the apostles enough or do we need to have all sorts of stuff beyond them and once you get there once you get to that point how do you not invest in the church, some kind of ultimate interpretational dogmatic authority. And at that point, I, I don't see how you avoid Rome, Eastern Orthodoxy. You know, those are the, the big major ones. You can, there might be some little ones running around trying to make some type of apostolic claim, but how do you avoid that? Good question. I'm not sure if you're able to hear that, but uh, nice, nice thunder rolling around uh, outside right now. So I'd like to know what these good and good and necessarily consequent doctrines are specifically. Um, number three, anti-metaphysics. Biblicism undervalues the use of philosophy in the service of exegesis and theology. Biblicism is especially allergic to metaphysics, failing to understand how the study of being should safeguard who God is, e.g. pure act. Ah, Aristotle. Yes. Thomas. Yes. In contrast to the creature. Because you're not going to find that in the Bible anywhere, right? I mean, Isaiah 40, 48 ain't enough for that. My thoughts are above your thoughts. Ain't enough for that. No! Come on! Those are just... Those are just prophets. <laughs> you, you silly biblicists, you, you need something much more than that. Sorry. Um, as a result, biblicism conflates theology and economy as if who God is in himself can be read straight off the pages of Scripture when these pages are often focused on historical events. Crucifixion, historical event. Wow, 
highest ultimate revelation of who God is we've ever seen. Happened in history. And I'm well aware of the fact that Isaiah 40 to 48, trial of false gods, smack down in the middle of history. Huh. So I guess we cannot read straight off the page of Scripture who God is without Aristotle. Is that what we're being told here? Is that what we're going to... Because I, I think this is what it's, it is, that is where it's going. And that's why I am quite confident um, that if I live as long as my dad lived, which I don't know that I will, that's all in God's hands. But if I live as long as my dad lived, I will see this movement in the rearview mirror as it careens off into the same wrecking yard as all the rest of them that have happened every couple generations. It's going to happen. Because you know what? Um, God has revealed himself in Scripture with clarity and with beauty and with depth. And not a single writer of Scripture ever, ever dreamed that you needed Aristotle to understand that. Not once. Not once. And if, if the men with whom I have served over the years and defended Christian theology, want to go this direction. I'm just simply saying to you, brothers, um, have a nice journey, and we'll be here when you get back. We'll, uh, we'll keep your room open for you. Unequivocal predication. I'm sorry, univocal. Univocal predication. Biblicism assumes language used of God in the text, should be applied to God in a direct fashion, as if the meaning of an attribute predicated of man has the same meaning when predicated of God. By consequence, Biblicism risks historicizing God by means of a literalistic interpretation of the text. Why? What, what, who assumes who assumes that if you listen to the Bible, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are higher than your ways. I'm not like you. And if you take that seriously, then you're not going to do what Joseph Smith did and take passages of Scripture and uh, turn it into some absurd statement uh, about God being a man. Or something along those lines. So, as if the meaning of an attribute predicated of man has the same meaning predicated of Who does that? I mean, I don't even think the Church of Christ people do that. Who does that? I don't know. I don't know. But we're certainly creating a boogeyman out of Biblicism, aren't we? Oh, it's it's bad. Oh, this is, this is horrible. Hearing the rain? Yes, the rain hath arrived. So, Biblicism risks historicizing God by means of a literalistic interpretation of the text. Hmm, literalistic. So, do we need origin here? Do we need a do we need an allegorical interpretation? Do we need to do what what Thomas did when so often 
commenting in scripture, completely missing the direct meaning and going elsewhere? Is that what we need to do? Is that what they're teaching in Midwestern? Now, I really... Do you... Do you, Southern Baptists, whose churches are supporting Midwestern, are you listening to this? Hello? Anybody out there? Are, are any of the... Are any of the the, the the people in charge, you know, addressing this? I, I don't know. I have no earthly idea. It's raining pretty good out there right now. I'm not sure, Rich, if you can hear that. Rich is probably sitting. <laughs> Rich is probably sitting there at the ATEM controls, going, "I will be able to filter it out. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's raining hard on the roof. I can get rid of it." <laughs> I don't know. Coming down good. Well, yeah. I mean, this is a nice soaking rain. It's not going to wash us away or anything. But, like I said, if it's 117 in Phoenix right now, you probably wish it was raining. Because <laughs> I, I can't see the, uh, I can't see my my temperature thing down there. Um, wow. Okay, now I hear it. Yeah, can't hear it at all. Okay. Oh, we reserved two hours on... Oh, you have to reserve a certain amount of time? Oh, time limitations. Okay, all right. I will keep that in mind. We're coming up on one hour, so uh, Mega is the longest we can do on Twitter. So, okay, we will we will keep that. You have to fill it all. <laughs> So if I don't go two hours on this one topic, which obviously Rich wants me to be talking about anyways, um, then um, I have to pay for the extra time we don't use. <laughs> anyways, okay. little break there uh, to enjoy the sound of the rain. Uh, actually, this is perfect for napping. <laughs> and at my age, it's like, that's eh, about right time for a nap. <laughs> Actually, I can't go very long because I have a dinner appointment this evening with dear friends. So I, I, will, I will just press on here. Okay, uh, number five, restrictive revelation. Biblicism is a suspicion or even dismissiveness toward the diverse ways, and this is obviously a typo because it says God's. God has revealed himself limiting itself to the book of scripture while shunning the book of creation. Biblicism is often suspicious towards natural theology. Well, um, obviously, since the Bible says that God has revealed certain aspects of his being through nature, then if you're a Biblicist, you believe that. Um, but, yes... A biblicist is going to very much be suspicious of people who use uninspired, non-revealed categories and standards to limit what the Bible can actually say, and going farther to say that without these external categories, you're not going to be able to understand what divine revelation actually says. And so, if we're when we talk about Natural, again, see Dr. Johnson's books, I think, is very helpful book. is coming out very soon. 
I read it a number of months ago, that will reignite this argument. But yes, natural theology has been used as an excuse to smuggle in external categories that fundamentally overthrow biblical categories, exegetical categories, apostolic, prophetic categories. And there's a long history of this in church history. There is no question about that. Uh, there is no reason to shun the book of creation, but the book of creation always is secondary to and interpreted in light of the categories provided in Scripture. I'll stand on that one any day. Um, no problem. Uh, number six, overemphasis on the human author. Here we go. Biblicism neglects the divine author's intent and ability to transcend any one human author. As a result, Biblicism struggles to explain the unity of the canon and Christological fulfillment, nor does it provide the metaphysics necessary to explain attributes of Scripture like an ins inspiration and inerrancy. Well, <clears throat> we have already seen so many times that when we challenge when people are going beyond the apostolic testimony, we challenge them and they're like, well, there's a, there's a deeper meaning, you see. And uh, you shouldn't be limited to what the human author understood. Well, of course, no one's saying that you are limited to what the human author understood because that human author only had access to a certain amount, amount of divine revelation. But the point is, if you're going to interpret a passage of Scripture, you have to interpret it as the author intended it when he communicated it. Now, when you see how it relates to this other author over here, and relates, there are themes that are woven through Scripture. No one, I, I've said that over and over and over again for a long, long time. But be very careful what these people, and I'm just going to be honest, what these people want to do is they want to open the door to external sources of definition and external sources of limitation as to what um, as to what scripture can possibly be saying and again history is full of this it's happened over and over and over and over again and of course eventually what you have in Rome is the church the church has the ability to not only interpret the written aspect of tradition, but the oral aspect as well. And the church has this living insight. And, and so you end up with all these dogmas and teachings and doctrines, and you're supposed to accept them like anything else. And the reformers come along and say, no, we're not going to do that. The apostles didn't teach that. So the question is, um, if we're talking about Paul, let's let's, let's issue Paul. Biblicism neglects the divine author's intent and ability to transcend Paul. As a result, Biblicism struggles to explain the unity of the canon. Why? Why? I mean, if, if, if what's being said here is that you don't believe that all of this was intended by God from the beginning to be a singular revelation given to his church that it had binding authority at each time during history but that it was god's ultimate intention that he would give to his church a completed canon 
We all believe that. Every biblicist I know believes that. And so I'm not saying that um, that that Isaiah, when he received his when he receives the revelation of Isaiah nine six, that Isaiah had a full understanding of what that was going to mean. I'm not saying that, but. It was God's intention that Isaiah 9-6 be in the same canon with John 1-1. And hence give to us in the church today a full understanding of the deity of Christ. So, um, when, you, when you don't start with the original intent of the author, I'm suspicious that you're going to be going someplace else. That does not mean that you can't see uh, the unity of the canon um, or Christological fulfillment in the New Testament. doesn't mean any of that. That's a pure straw man. Canard. Canard. Again, this is not... This is like this was something that was written for Credo Magazine that just accidentally got dumped in the middle of stuff here. Um, this isn't historical theology going on. Nor does it provide the metaphysic necessary to explain attributes of Scripture like inspiration and inerrancy. Okay, what, what, uh, where, where's, where's those, what metaphysics are those? Where they come from? Do, do we need, do we need Aristotle now to uh, have inspiration and inerrancy? What, what? Tell us what. Like to know what? Because I've always discussed inspiration and inerrancy on the basis of scripture and so um since that's now wrong uh what's what's the basis that we need and once you explain that basis i'd really love to see you defend even your definition of solo scriptura be really interesting to see be really interesting to see um <clears throat> these points are taken boy is this obvious or not these points are taken from my forthcoming systematic theology, Baker Academic. Oh, we can't wait. Uh, we're so benighted till then. Um, for a critique of Biblicism today and a call to return to the Reformation understanding of authority, see our Scott Clark recovering the Reformed Confession. As for the origins of the word, the earliest use of the word Biblicism in English occurred in 1827 in a word by in a work by Sophie Fingen in Criticism of Biblicism in 1874, J.J. Van Oosterzee defined it as idolatry of the letter. And then it just shifts. It's like, I, I mean, this was, whoever the editor here is should be whipped with a wet noodle because this is really bad. I mean, this does not flow. There's no connection. I mean, I've written more books than Matthew Barrett has. And this is just bad. This was rushed. This was not edited appropriately at all because it just sort of ends there. It's, I'm going to take a shot. I'm going to I'm going to drop a a an argument from my forthcoming systematic theology book from Baker Academic and I'm going to drop it in here, and then we're just going to move on from there. And I'm just going to let, leave you wondering, what just happened? 
Why did this just happen? I don't know. But there it is. So, I, I saw it and I'm like, who is this aimed at? Because there's, there's no references. There's no illustrations. It's so easy. These guys just find it so easy because they are so they're so sheltered in in their little academic halls of covered with ivy that we don't have to do that. We can just throw stuff out, and everyone's gonna go, "Oh, you're so wise." Well, so are you. Oh man, you're so smart. Okay. What good does it do? Other than result in a book that's next to impossible to follow. Um, yeah, that's that's amazing stuff. That's amazing stuff. So like I said, um, if you'd like to see a, a really well-written, it's short, it's brief, but re rebuttal to this uh, that appeared on Twitter, um, Eric Yeager, uh, at Milk Toast on Rye. At Milk Toast, M I L K T O A S T O N R Y E, um, did a 10 tweet thread on confessionalism, where he did the same thing to confessionalism that Barrett did here to biblicism. And that is just, I don't have a straw man, and I have. I do have something to light up a straw man if I had a straw man with me, but I don't have a straw man with me. I do need to have a mobile straw man. Uh, so uh, someone sent us the uh, straw man that we, we have in the, in the studio, but we don't have a mobile straw man, and uh, that's, that's problematic. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, on Twitter, which is where we are, which is sort of nice. Don't leave here yet. But... Uh, but uh, Eric put together a good thing. It does it does the same thing to confessionalism that Barrett just did to the straw man of biblicism. And it's all it's all part of the program. It's all part of the program. So there you go. Um so obviously don't have time to do the other topics I was going to be doing. We've gone 10 minutes over. That's fine. Let me just go ahead and and uh wrap up with um just a couple of comments to our dear friends, Steve Camp, who, uh, I don't know, um, I'm not sure exactly what Steve spends his time doing, but every once in a while he just comes out, lobs a few bombs, um, and then disappears again for a while. And I'm not sure exactly why that works. But he posted a, a Twitter thread, started off like this. Not... One post-mill theonomist translates the text of the Great Commission accurately. Not one. Now, obviously, uh, what Steve meant to say was that not one post-mill theonomist understands the text of the Great Commission the way that Steve Camp does. <laughs> okay? That's what he should have said. Um... Steve Camp doesn't read Greek, to my knowledge. Um, do you, Steve? Because back when I knew you, um, you'd ask me questions about stuff like that. Remember? I remember. Um, I, I don't. I don't think you're Greek literate. So I'm not sure. This is a little bit like when I was asking, when I ask um, Trent Horn, 
about his capacity to analyze Poirier's, Poirier's um, arguments. TLG CD-ROM, semantic domain studies, stuff like that. That's a relevant question because he's making conclusions based upon these arguments. And I want to know, can you consistently analyze the arguments? When I ask Dale Tuggy, where did you learn Greek? How many years? Where have you taught Greek? What kind of Greek have you taught? He makes overarching conclusions about entire grammatical, oh, it's just, it's just fluff, that's just ridiculous, this is absurd. And it's like, okay, you're giving me a conclusion that requires you to have a basis for being able to say it. Now we apply the same standard to Steve Camp. Um, where have I mistranslated? Because he says at the end, even Douglas Wilson and James White uh, as accomplished as they are, get this wrong. Okay, where have I mistranslated Matthew 28, 19-20? Demonstrate it, Steve. Prove it. From the Greek. What your, your argument here is not about translation at all. Your argument is interpretation and application in specific as to what it means to disciple the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what the issue is about. And so please try, at least, uh, to be somewhat accurate when, when people accuse you of, accuse me, of mistranslation. I, you know, take that fairly seriously. And that's why I'm taking the time to respond to you here. So when we look at Matthew 28, we all know this text. I, I'm well aware of that. But when we when we look at it, uh, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, um, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. Therefore, go, disciple Panta Ta Ethne." Okay. Mathe chusate means to make disciples. And the problem here, honestly, let me roll this up and we can do this thing again. Um, the, the, the problem here is, for example, uh, there are a lot of verbs in Greek that we don't have corresponding verbs for, and so we have to turn them into nouns and then use a helping verb along with it. So the problem is not in Greek. The problem is in English. And mathechuo is to, is to teach with a, with a goal of making a disciple. But see, we, we don't have a disciple verb. Well, I suppose you, I discipled him. Yeah, I suppose you could, you could actually squeeze that one in there. But the issue is all in English here. It's, it's not a, a problem. It, it literally says to disciple all the nations. That's what it says. Now, what you're saying is, no, 
It means to make disciples. Okay, but that's an application. You're making an application because the the next um, there are are two participial phrases that are attached to the the, the command: baptizing and teaching. And you don't baptize nations. You baptize individuals. And we're told how to do that, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is an authority act. That's what baptizing in the name of someone is. Why? It's not just repeating a name. It is a submission to the authority of the name into which you're being baptized. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them. So, the altus is a plural. And technically, the antecedent defining it is ta ethne, the nations. So, the reality, Steve, is that you are the one who has a particular interpretation and you are saying it must be this because of the individualization of baptizing and teaching. And I agree. But the reality is, the, the reason up here that ta ethne is a plural accuser is because it's direct object of disciple. So it's the nation's that are being discipled. And then you make application by saying, and the participial phrases that are modifying this indicate personal reality. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them, the infinitive Tehrein, to keep, to observe all whatsoever I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you. Make sure it's still in me. Yep. Behold, I am with you. Uh, always until the end of the age. So, these two participial phrases, I believe, rightly tell us that this, is, that this involves individual activity. You baptize individuals. Who are members of ta ethne, the nations. You teach them to keep everything I've commanded you. But the antecedent is ta ethne. You have to make the application. You have to make the argument. You assumed it. You just assumed it and accused us of mistranslation when in fact you're the one making the assumption and not proving it. Real common to have that happen. People do that with their traditions all the time. Now, I agree. And if this verse is being applied and you are living in a period of time where God is judging a nation or judging a culture, then the number of people being baptized and the number of people being taught is not big. There have been times in church history where that was the case. 
But that doesn't mean it's always the case. That doesn't mean that that's always the situation. There are certain um, there are certain eschatologies that do assume that that will always be the case. I get that, uh, and maybe you assume that. I don't know. But um, you said so. None of us translated accurately. Here's what the text actually says, and you gave the citation, and you used the translation: "Make disciples of all nations." Okay. But the, and but you are understanding that to mean make individual disciples out of the nations because of the following two participial phrases. That's where you're getting it from. And I agree in general. But the fact remains that the foundation for going and doing this in all nations is that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ. And he commands us to go into every nation. Okay? So you said, here's how the PTs, I guess that's post-mill theonomists, PTs wrongly divide the word of truth. They say, go therefore and disciple all nations. See the subtle, obvious error? The problem is, Steve, that if you read Greek, you'd know that's actually the accurate translation. So you need to understand the difference between translation and interpretation and application. And you're not showing, you're not showing that you understand that and then accusing us of subtle, obvious error and mistranslation and all the rest of this stuff. And it's just baloney. There's nothing to it. All you're saying is, you disagree with me! <laughs> okay, then say you disagree with me, but don't accuse us of mistranslation, subtle, obvious errors, um, and the rest of the stuff you're going to say. The text is not saying all nations are to be discipled, but that we are to make disciples of all nations. Well, you could understand both of them to say the same thing, but you are making an assumption. And again, I agree, the participial phrases indicate the individuality of baptism and the individuality of teaching. I, I, I agree. But what if there is, in fact, a fulfillment of all the nations seeking God's law? What if there is, in fact, a great move of the Spirit of God in our future? What will that look like? Would that not be would that not be entire nations coming at the to come to the feet of King Jesus? And then would your distinction really have any meaning? No, it wouldn't. Not in that context. That's the point. You have to put it into a context. Um in other words, believers discipled of every nation, not all people of all nations without distinction without exemption. Maybe there's some post-mill theonomist out there somewhere that actually believes you should just force baptize everybody. I've not met them. Um, that's not what I believe. And you name me here, so try representing my view once. That'd be nice. I'd appreciate that. That'd be, that would be helpful if you'd represent where I'm actually coming from. And it's not that my view isn't well known because I've discussed this, for example, 
with Doug Wilson in the Sweater Vest Dialogues. But, Steve, you have filters on. You've got glasses on. You only hear what you want to hear. It's common with you. Um, and so not all people of all nations without distinction, without exemption. Uh, I, again, uh, I've never taught anywhere. I've never heard Doug Wilson teach anywhere that we should be engaging in forced discipleship, forced baptism, that kind of thing. Um, I haven't seen it. Maybe that's what you're thinking. This is how inverted and unreliable post-mill theonomy adherents are today. Well, thank you. Except that we've just demonstrated that your entire argument was bogus. Eisegesis is not a spiritual gift. It's skewed opinion. Ding, boom. Nothing there. It didn't go off because you didn't provide any argumentation. We've refuted it. Um... Even Douglas Wilson and James White as a commentator get this wrong. Wrong. You got it wrong, not me. Tragic, actually. Tragic. And then you went on to say it's so good to be on millennial. Were you on millennial when we first met? I don't. I don't that sure that you were. You were a grace. I don't think you were on millennial then. So maybe you've changed and everything's good now and fine and wonderful. I don't know. Maybe you went and learned Greek somewhere. I don't know. Uh, but come on, Campy. Uh, that was. Pitiful. <laughs> it's just pitiful and not too difficult to to refute. refute but I, I hope you hear it and go, oh, wow, okay, yeah, I missed that one. Hopefully, anyways. Okay, so we did not get back into um, the Granville Sharp construction, but we'll do that on Friday. And who knows? Maybe something will happen on Twitter. Maybe something will happen in the world. Um, I don't know if you'll... Y'all see uh, Joe Biden almost fall asleep while mumbling uh, with the president of Israel or something there? I, running that man for president is an insult to the United States. It is an absolute insult to the United States. Um, Rich says, you have to keep going. Twitter is still going. You can't stop. Well, you know, I know that you're over here, but I can press buttons faster than you can because there's a delay. So, um, and you can't control my computer. So you can try to keep it going, but all I have to do is hit stop on the record, and it will stop. And I can probably hit uh, stop on, off on on air too, and that would stop the feed to Twitter. And... Um, I think that this would actually override anything that you did. So, um, go ahead. He says he's rolfing. <laughs> rolfing is normally when you've had had um, um, food poisoning, like, like I had. <laughs> he's supposed to be ruffling, but uh, rolling on floor laughing. But anyways, we're we're having too much fun here. So. All right, uh, so we will we will continue on. Uh, we'll we'll do the uh, Granville Sharp stuff on Friday, and uh, some more of the Unitarian responses. Hope you caught all of the debate announcements. Maybe by Friday we'll have the other debate announcement uh, to be able to add to that for what we're doing in Houston. And Fe February is going to be incredible. 
Uh, and in fact, let's see, two, five, seven. Well, I'll be getting close to 190. Yep, we'll be getting close to what. I might make it to 200 before I croak. I don't know. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. But anyways, thanks for listening to Dividing Line today, and we will see you on Friday, Lord willing. God bless.